We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Ben Standing will join me on the show here uh, in a few minutes. want to tell you that the show today is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag. Use my bonus code, Kevin DC, and they'll match your deposit halfway up to $1,000. I was looking at MyBookie uh, before the show today because I wanted to see what the updated NFC East odds were, and they're as close as they have been since the offseason began. Right now, at my bookie, Dallas is plus 130 to win the NFC East. All right, bet $100 on the Cowboys, you win 130 And Washington is as close to Dallas as they have been since the offseason began. They are plus 160. So right now, Washington closing in on Dallas uh, at my bookie, and who knows? By the time we get to the opener, they might be the favorite. By the way, the Giants are plus three fifty. The Eagles are plus six hundred to win the NFC East. I think the Giants, personally, at plus three fifty, are worth it. Um, I think they are a good Daniel Jones, not an excellent, but a good Daniel Jones season. Um, away from contending and potentially winning the division. I love their roster. I think the Giants' roster is very underrated. Now, one of the things that I've been reading is just the health of Saquon Barkley and whether or not he's going to be ready for training camp at 100%. And if he's not, well, that's a big miss for them because without Saquon Barkley last year, they went 6-10, and but in that division they were still close to winning the division. And by the way, let's not forget, they swept Washington last year without Barkley. Barkley's a key. Daniel Jones is a bigger key. I really like the Giants at plus 350 as a play. Um, But it is interesting to watch how Washington continues to inch closer to sort of that favorite in the NFC East. Um, I think more and more people nationally are starting to feel like Washington's defense in particular is going to give them a chance to contend, uh, and I think they feel the quarterback situation uh, is different. Anyway, uh, you can bet on anything at my bookie. You can bet on tonight's NBA Finals Game 4. I'll just tell you right now, I like Phoenix tonight plus the 4. Um, I think that this is the first competitive game of this series. I actually like Phoenix on the 
money line uh, at MyBookie, MyBookie.ag. They're plus 145 on the money line. I think Phoenix is just too difficult to stop if they have everybody on the floor uh, healthy and not in foul trouble. DeAndre Ayton getting into foul trouble the other night was a killer for Phoenix. I like the Suns tonight. Uh, I really do. I like them before the series started um, in five games. So if that's going to hold up, then they have to win uh, tonight. But I just have a feeling they bounce back. And the public right now is all over the Bucks after Giannis's game the other night. And there is this sense now that Milwaukee can win the series. And so the public is playing the favorite tonight. You know what that means for me. Um, I love going against the public and thinking in a more contrarian way. I like Phoenix plus the four uh, tonight. Uh, anyway, go to mybookie, mybookie.ag. Use my promo code Kevin DC, and they're going to match your deposit halfway up to a thousand bucks. So if you deposit a thousand dollars, they're going to give you an extra five hundred to play with. Uh, deposit eight hundred, they give you an extra four hundred to play with. It's totally worth it. Uh, my bookie's got fair pricing. They've got great uh, odds. Um, it's a place where you can totally rely on, uh, and you can't rely on every place, uh, but you can at MyBookie. By the way, they've got an online casino as well. Uh, be careful in those online casinos. You can spend a lot of the day uh, sitting down at a blackjack table um, and, uh, and playing cards, um, but MyBookie does a phenomenal job. Go to MyBookie at MyBookie.ag. Uh, and use my promo code Kevin DC. You got to use my promo code. If you don't use it, then they're not going to know um, that they heard it here. And if you already have an account, you can still go back and re-up that account uh, as well. Um, before we get to Ben today, I'm going to tell you real quickly on radio. I did um, a call segment this morning based on an exchange that Matthew Paris had with Jason Wright. Matthew Paris is the Washington football team beat reporter for the Washington Times. Matt does a really good job covering the team. And he tweeted out on Monday night, I think it was, for what it's worth, I asked how the team will handle fans wanting to wear old Redskins memorabilia. And Jason Wright's response to Matthew Paris was, quote, we haven't yet determined how we'll handle past and remaining references to our name, closed quote. This, if it weren't asked specifically about how they'll handle fans wearing old Redskins memorabilia, which is obviously an implication of how they'll be handled in the stadium on game day, then this answer could have been, you know, it, it, it could have gone in a lot of different directions. Like, what does this mean with respect to how we, you know, reference it on our own website or in our own, you know, historical library of film that we sometimes use? Look, the NFL Network and all NFL outlets, you know, if you watch the NFL Network and you watch America's game or America's you know, team where they go through the all the Super Bowl winners, they had the 91 team uh, episode on uh, last week. You know, that's the Gibbs Rippin Charles Mann um, 91 team uh, episode. Uh, th there's no cutting back on references to Redskins. It's part of the league's history. 
And by the way, a big part and an important part of the league's history for many reasons. But on the football side, they were a storied winning franchise for, you know, an entire decade plus. They won three Super Bowls. You're not going to cut that stuff out. Remember a year ago when this all started to happen, a lot of fans were concerned about will they cut out all references to the team name, historical references, you know, past, you know, shows and videos. What will they do when, you know, they show the seat cushion game and they see seat cushions flying down in the playoff game in 91 against Atlanta in the pouring rain hitting the end zone that says Redskins are going to, are they going to blot it out? No, they haven't done any of that. They haven't done any of that. Now, with respect to Jason Wright's answer, to Matt Paris's question. We haven't yet determined how we'll handle past and remaining references to our name. Well, it does present the possibility, or at least they are discussing, or at least it's come up in conversation, the possibility of some sort of game day dress code. Can you imagine? I can't. I don't think that this is a practical thing Um, from their standpoint, and I think it would be completely unwise from a business standpoint. You know, there I I put out the poll this morning on what people thought of a potential game day dress code. And again, let me be clear. I don't think they'll have one, and I think that you will have some sort of an announcement or maybe no announcement at all um, about what they – um, you know, they're not going to have a dress code. I just don't, I can't see it. First of all, trying to enforce that. What a disaster, right? Hey, dude, you got to take, uh, take off that Clinton Portis jersey. It says Redskins on the front of it. Well, I didn't bring any other clothes. Sorry. I mean, come on. It's not going to happen. They do have the right because it's a private contract, a ticket with a private company for all intents and purposes. You know, you you may have free speech on the outside, but you're not free of consequence on the inside. Anyway, uh, I put out this poll, your thoughts on a possible game day dress code, and I gave four potential answers. You're outraged by it and you won't abide by it. That's number one. Number two is, well, you'll just handle it by not going to games. Number three is, actually, you believe it's a totally appropriate response. And four is you don't really care either way. I don't think this will be a thing personally. I think Jason probably, if because this thing blew up a little bit yesterday on social media, probably wishes he didn't answer it and leave it open-ended the way he did. Um, but uh, if there were, for me personally, 2019 was the first year since I was five years old that I didn't go to a game. So 2018, 2017, 2016 were really the first years where I only went to one to two games. So I, I, I'm not going to games as much anymore. So the, and I've already mentioned that I'm not overly passionate about this stuff as much as I thought I would be. So my answer would be, I don't really care either way. But I also would say, parenthetically, I predict that this won't be a thing, that it won't happen. But 53.6% of 1,500-plus respondents at this point um, in the first hour and a half of putting that poll out there, 53.6%, the majority say they'd be outraged and they wouldn't abide by it. 
23.3% say they don't care either way. 17.3% say, say they just won't go to games. And 5.8% say it would be totally appropriate for it to be handled that way. You know, it wouldn't be a good business move either, clearly. Um, and that leads me to this because I wanted to add to sort of the conversation of the last, you know, two days, not as much yesterday as the day before with Tommy. Um, but, you know, this whole notion of a name versus no name, uh, the poll that we did the day before was, do you think that when the team announces its new name and corresponding um, logo and everything related to the brand in early 2022, do you think the team will actually have a name or it'll remain sort of city-focused, you know, Washington football team or Washington football club or FC Washington or Washington FC or DCFC? Or do you think it, you know, will be the Washington Red Hogs or the Washington Presidents or the Washington, you know, Monarchs or the Brigade or the Belters or the Swifts or the Rubies, whatever they're considering? Um, that is an interesting question because that is, a, you know, a debate among many of you. You know, so when we get it in 2022, is it going to be a real name or is it just going to be Washington being the brand? Again, I'm not as passionate about this issue as I perhaps would have guessed I would have been a year or so ago, but I hope and I would prefer it to be Washington as the primary part of the brand, but I would lean in the direction of there's going to be a name. And I would lean in the direction that there's going to be an actual name, the Washington somethings, because I think just intuitively that the revenue upside is much greater if you actually have a name. I don't have any research or any data to support that, but I just think things like apparel um, would would sell at a more significant rate if it's the Washington Red Wolves, which I can't stand, or the Washington Renegades, um, or the Washington Commanders, than if it was just FC Washington. That's my guess. And if that's true, and their research indicates that that's true, well, then they're going to, you know, they're going to to to, to go in the direction of a name. Um, that's not my preference necessarily, but that's my guess. By the way, the reaction. Um, the response uh, to that poll was pretty split. There was a slight lean, like 51-plus percent of people thinking that there will be a name, that there there will be, you know, a team name uh, beyond Washington's, you know, FC or football team um, when it's announced in early 2022. Last thing before we get to Ben, I wanted to mention that I got um, a note from Kevin about some of the conversation related to um, the, the, the team uh, this week uh, and some of the Jason Wright comments, et cetera. And he said, you know, you basically said with respect to Jason Wright's comments about becoming a sports and media entertainment gold standard, you, you, you answered the way I think a lot of Washington fans answered it, and that is stop. Stop with the everything but football. You know, this is another winning 
uh, off the field comment. And he and Kevin, you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, said, Kevin, you sort of said that's another winning off the field thing. You know, the funny thing he writes is, my God, which was worse, the lack of winning on the field or their perceived winning off the field? Yeah, it's close. They never won off the field. They were as big of a disaster off the field as they were on it. And even though I've mentioned this many times and referred to this many times, my favorite Doc Walker line, which is, this organization is great Monday through Saturdays. Sundays are the problem. Well, the truth is, over the years, they weren't very good Monday through Saturdays either. You know when they were good at times? The month of March like free agency or the draft and getting everybody ginned up with some sort of move. And for a brief moment, maybe, maybe they were winning off the field. Um, but for the, for the most part, they lost off the field as much as they lost on it. With that said, um, I had Barry's Verluga on the radio show this morning. He wrote a column recently. And I, I do wonder whether or not we're right back in the same place where we've been before and we're expecting a different result, meaning there's optimism again like there was in 2000, like there was after the 2005 season, like there was after the 2012 season, like there was to a certain degree after the 2015 season, and like there is now after last year. And this time, you know, because of all that's happened over the last year, and I went through it yesterday, um, it's maybe a different time. Maybe this time will be different. I have no idea what the answer to that is. I think some of you believe this is. This last year created the pressure to change, created and put the pressure on the owner to change, and that this time something's going to come out of all of the you know distasteful stuff that's happened off the field. Um, not to mention it corresponds with more talent on the roster than there's been, better coaching on the roster than there's been, still, though, a question at the most important position on the field, which is quarterback. I don't know what the answer is. I do feel like the upcoming season or the upcoming next two seasons has a chance to be much more competitive and much more pleasant to watch than some of the seasons more recently. It's still going to come down ultimately to whether or not they've got a quarterback that can make plays and a quarterback that can play at least at a top half of the league level. They had that briefly in 15-16 and maybe even 17, but they had a horrendous defense. This time, if they can get top half of the quarterback play, from Fitzpatrick or Heineke, well, they have a much better supporting cast defensively. And I think they've got a much better coaching staff. Ben Standig, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide 
that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We welcome Ben Standig uh, on the podcast. Everybody knows Ben writes for The Athletic. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Standig, and you can subscribe to The Athletic. It's totally worth it. And Ben and Rhiannon and all of the local writers uh, make the price worth uh, the admission. And Ben's got a podcast, too, Standing Room Only. You can get that anywhere you get a podcast. Uh, we're going to get into several topics with Ben today. But you wrote a column yesterday um, where you went out and asked people about Washington's um, rookies, uh, and you got feedback from, um, from a longtime NFL scout and an executive who's watched each player, um, uh, that they drafted. And before we get to, uh, their third round pick, which I, I know how excited they were to get Deami Brown. Um, let's go through it one by one. What did you learn about what you know, NFL people, or at least one NFL executive, thinks about Washington's rookie class. Yeah, so, like, this is an exercise that was, you know, probably more uh, appropriate to do sort of, you know, right after the draft, and obviously I did some of those things then, but I was having a conversation with somebody somewhat recently, and, you know, sort of the idea came up, and I, I don't remember exactly which one of the players we were talking about first, but he made a point that was that was interesting. I was like, well, would you mind, you know, sort of, you know, on the you know not on the record per se but whatever like you know g- give me your thoughts on on the players in this class that you feel comfortable talking about and that's kind of where kind of where we went and um you know I think the the broader takeaway is it was and the reason I wrote about it was because camp's about because we're about to start and soon enough we'll lump the rookies in with the overall fifty three they won't just be rookies they'll be part of the team but right now they're still sort of a separate subset is a reminder of that like this seems like on paper to be a pretty good class, particularly those guys at at the top. And yeah, Jamie Davis is going to get a lot of attention because he was a first round pick and linebacker obviously is a, a big position of need. And we've talked about Sam Cosby a bunch because they kind of, you know, have, have him in a position now where they kind of need to get something out of him at some point here because, um, you know, they moved on from Morgan Moses. But those two third round guys and St. Juice and, and De'Ami Brown, you know, it feels like early on, like that's maybe where their best value is going to come out and this person particularly was a big fan of of brown cosme as well um and uh, you know like i said it's, it's going to be really interesting you know uh, you know whoever we want to give credit to these things you know two years in a row with ron rivera sort of in charge of this thing at least intellectually if not from a scouting perspective you know washington has gotten high marks um following the draft 
Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've always like been of the um, of the mindset that it's impossible to really grade a draft until three years after it, roughly three years after it. But last year's draft, it's obvious that they didn't whiff on Chase Young. Um, Antonio Gibson looks like he could really be a player. And Cameron Curl in the seventh round looks like a potential NFL starter. So they did pretty well there. But number two overall wasn't very hard. You know, this year, you know, and by the way, Kyle Smith was a part of that decision-making outfit last year, right? I mean, do we know today, Ben, how much credit Kyle Smith gets for last year's draft? Um. Not, not, not exactly. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I think, you know, all, all it's it's confusing, right? Because even when you talk to some people who are, you know, involved, tangentially involved, who know what's happening, whatever, you know, it's just like with anything, right? If you and I start right this minute having a conversation about um, anything, whatever the topic is, and somehow we end up with some conclusion. Do you have? Do you always remember exactly where the where the idea came from? You know who who was the first person? Like I remember when, like for example, like Ron Rivera gave a lot of credit. This isn't about the draft. This is for agency. To like, um, he gave a lot of credit to Pete, hey, the tight end coach Pete Hayner, right. for pointing out Logan Thomas, and that totally seems like I mean, what do I know? It seems like a reasonable thing, sure. But at the same point, like, how did Pete Hayner get to that person? Did Pete Hayner get to that person because he automatically knew Logan Thomas, or like when Jay Gruden? Was, was given some credit for identifying Cole Holcomb. Uh, he didn't. I don't think Jay Gruden was watching a North Carolina game and told everybody, "Hey, go find this guy. Go look at this guy." I think it was more probably like, "Hey, here are players to look at." He looks at them, determines that player that is interesting to him, and then they go from from there. So I suspect it's a lot of that too, right? The scouting department is the one looking at these players all year long, and more than just more than just one year. In in most in some cases, they you know call their list down to the number of players, and then they push that forward to the coaching staff and others, and then it kind of goes from there. So Kyle Smith obviously being in charge of a lot of that certainly gets credit. I, I don't know if I can specifically say he's the one that said, hey, Antonio Gibson, Scott Turner, before you fall in love with him, go look at this guy. And then Scott Turner falls in love with him, and now he's on the team. So, um, you know, it's a combination of things. Obviously, Kyle Smith highly respected. I think he's, just, I think he's you know, he's doing well. He'll, he'll eventually be a GM in this league, I would imagine. Um, Atlanta obviously likes them. They, they signed themselves. So gets credit, but it's always a weird dynamic of who exactly gets credit for what when these ideas start to germinate weeks, months, years in advance of when the actual pick made. And a lot of times we don't hear about how it came about until years after. I mean, J- you, you mentioned Jay Gruden. Matt Ioannidis was his. You know, um, it's Scott McLuhan has said it. Jay Gruden has said it. Matt Ioannidis, he fell in love with Ioannidis' tape. You know, I, I'm reminded as we're sitting here talking that Scott McLuhan said, um, I know he told me this on a podcast, um, that Jay Gruden, out of all the coaches he's ever worked with, head coaches, was by far and away the best evaluator of college talent. And Jay Gruden, when he was on my podcast, and I know he was on yours as well, um, you know, over the last six months, I told him that, and I said, do you think that's, you know, a strength of yours? And he said, it's the strength. 
And I remember saying something like, well, why don't you just, why don't you go into that? Why don't you become a GM? Um, But he always felt like he was really good. You know, and I think back to like the Brandon Sheriff comment. Remember, you know, we got a, we got, we got a receiver and we got a guard in the first two years. But, (laughs) but uh, I also know that he was in love with Trey Quinn and wanted them to draft Trey Quinn in like the fourth round. And, you know, they were essentially saying, you know, slow it down. We're going to be able to get him. We're going to be able to get him. And, you know, Trey Quinn's had injuries, and, you know, I don't even know if he's still in the league um, anymore. Um, Who – do we know anything about how the acquisition of players works now? Like Mayhew, Herney, Stokes, Polian, Gribble, you know, Ron – Etc. Do we have any sense as to who's handling what? I know Herney's on the road more than Mayhew, um, but how? How? What's your sense of you know the front office hierarchy responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of what you just uh, saying. Like Herney's out there, out on, on the on the road a lot. I mean, Mayhew is in the building, um, watching tape, but also dealing with. Uh, people around the league a bit more. I mean, Gribble as the as the, the you know the role that Kyle Smith used to have as the head of the the college scouting side. You know, like you know the usual. You know, you, you bird dog players around the around the country. You pour over the tape and you're overseeing all the other all the other scouts. I, you know, look, this group has been pretty quiet for the most part when it comes to you know explaining sort of how the how the sausage is made. But I think the thing that sort of stands out to me, you just mentioned like sort of the idea of Jay Gruden wanting a Trey Quinn in the fourth round. And right, this is always the issue when you have a coach making personnel decisions. The coach is viewing it from the perspective of, I like this player and I need this position more than seeing the overall board. He's not looking at all 500 players you could possibly sift through and maybe doesn't therefore have as good of a feel for where that player fits. I think one thing, you know, Again, it's hard to say, but and and we'll see how these draft classes unfold over time. But you know, it does feel like there's a, a, a there is a cohesion to what's happening here these last two years, even with different people involved. And that's you know, I think you have to give Ron Rivera a lot of credit for that. It would be easy again as as the coach to say, "Hey, I want a quarterback. I need a long term solution at quarterback here. We can't just go year to year with this thing and and whatever." And obviously, he tried to get. Matthew Stafford, but that, you know, that didn't work out. But it, it would have been easy for him to say, "Hey, we're going to trade up to the tenth pick to take Justin Fields or what or whatever." Right. But he didn't do that. He he allowed the front office side of his brain or the voices in the building to probably help say to him, "Well, actually, you know, maybe we don't want to do that. Maybe we don't think that Justin Fields is worth trading up the picks we need to get because we like enough players in these other rounds and this, that, and the other, and, and et cetera." And uh, like I think that to me is the most interesting part of kind of what's happening right now is I don't know you know it's it's more sexy to discuss well who is the person that discovered Cam Curl or whatever but it's more to me right now is there seems to be a, a cohesion to this and just lastly to this point I always <laughs> I always end up bringing in a Wizards analogy to this but like you know during the Scott Brooks era one thing that was sort of frustrating was watching whether it was in free agency or the draft the Wizards would have players that clearly the coach did not care for to, as like something he, he viewed, and therefore the player wasn't used properly or at all. And what's the point of drafting somebody if the coach isn't going to use them the, in the best way that the front office would see it? In this case, though, it feels like because Rivera is 
kind of running both, that the, sure. the cohesion is a lot better. And that's, I think, very important when it comes to why, you know, there's some optimism here. Because you can't, it's not just about assembling talent. It's, I mean, they, they have a lot of talent under Bruce Allen. It just, they didn't have to, they didn't have to do anything with it. They would draft like a Dwayne Haskins, who the quarter, the head coach didn't want. Or they would add other players that didn't fit their system. And there, and then you don't get, and then you don't maximize the, the, the circumstance. So that to me is what was interesting. Is it seems to be that everybody's on the same page, and a lot of that obviously, I think you have to give credit to Rivera. All right, let's um, let's go through <clears throat> some of these picks because um, you got uh, you know a take from uh, a scout, and you got some takes from their coaches already. But I, I want to go through these and just talk about each one of these players, like Jamin Davis. Obviously, a freakish athlete. Everything about him, you know, flashed potential. Um, we're here, you know, less than two weeks away now, or exactly two weeks away from the beginning of camp. You know, give me a the conversation that you had with the scout, uh, his take, and then B right now where you see Jamin Davis slotting in. You know, when when camp begins and potentially, you know, taking it a step or two forward to the regular season. Sure, um, I'll, I'll try to answer. Uh, in such a way that it's interesting, yet people still go read. Uh, the, uh, you know, I think, I think, you know, look, I think with David, you mentioned the athleticism, right? That's the number one thing that jumps off. That it's not, you know, a guy at his size, when, you know, in the two thirty-five pound range, can run as fast as he can. We've seen the pictures of him. You know, he and Chase Young are probably going to have a contest of like who can wear the who who best pulls off the half shirt, um, because I think both of them are going to both of them seem like they're going to be that kind of kind of a guy um and his athleticism is what stands out and it does feel like that's what shoved him as high into the into the draft conversation as it did yet he was also highly productive at kentucky but the point that the scout was sort of making was that like he would watch the games and like okay yeah actually jamie davis did this and jamie davis did that but he didn't feel that it was a jamie davis game the way you, you maybe see some other notable defensive players that you're just like wow that player you know how many of these how many of these guys are out there on the field but then he would look up the stats and Jamie Davis would have 11 tackles 14 tackles what have you so that he was productive but it just wasn't always in like a wow kind of a way which isn't to say that's not necessarily a, say a negative it's just to note that it didn't always feel like he was like this crazy dominant player but I mean you know, at the same point I would this is sort of my view Jamie Davis basically only had the one year in college. I mean, he, this last year is when he really had the breakout. That's why he was so off the radar initially for a lot of people because he wasn't somebody that you were, you know, aware of, um, especially in a, as a first round pick talent prior to this year. So, you know, the, the athleticism right now is ahead of the, 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 the technique, but the, but the potential is pretty significant, uh, you know, regardless. Yeah. I, I, um, I think this was, you know, going into the off season. They needed, uh, they had the front four. They needed the back seven to improve, especially the middle three. You know, they were not a great run stopping team. And I think, you know, Ben, as we look at this season, I think one of the keys will be: can they become a more consistent run stopping team? Because in my opinion, you can't be an elite defense if you're an inconsistent run stopping team. The best defenses of all time were massive run stopping first defenses, and I wonder whether or not, in any conversations you've had with anybody, <clears throat> they think because of the addition of Davis in particular that they have. Uh, they have answered the question of of being, you know, a better linebacking core to improve their run defense. 
Right, and I realize I didn't answer your the question like where does Jamin Davis kind of kind of fit in, and I think the answer is basically the the hope is that yeah, I mean, look, we all watched the games last year. The linebacker position, you know, was okay, but that was about the extent of it, and they didn't have somebody that could take full advantage of the opportunities perhaps presented by that defensive line, and you know, Rivera. You know, has moments of, of of real candor, and during the year, he clearly was calling out the linebacking core. Um, you know, the, you know, in variety of ways. And you know, when we got to the off season, he pulled back on some of that a little bit. I think it's probably from like a human perspective, but I doubt he really changed his his tune. And I think the hope is that David, with his you know sideline to sideline athleticism, is going to be able to chase down players. It's going to be hard for the defenses, or sorry, for the offenses. To focus on him, right? I mean, where, what, why are you paying attention to him when you have all those players up front? Even if he's, you know, showing as a blitzer, he's going to send, he's going to take people, you know, he's like focus on him when Chase Young and Montez Sweat are coming from the edge. So I think the, the I think his athleticism, if he can figure out the technique sooner than later, I'm not saying that poor technique. I just mean you know, be, be a consistent, you know, tackler, and he's going to, you know, he's a rookie. He's going to have some adjustment issues that's standard across the board. But once he can figure that out, then I think the hope is that it really gives them an element they didn't have at all last year, not just uh, an improvement over something, something they just didn't even have. And I think that's the hope um, going forward. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting. One of the things you wrote in your column that the scouts take is it might be easier for him to start in the middle um, versus the outside. And if he were to start in the middle, where does that leave John Bostick? Because John Bostick's not an outside linebacker. And John Bostick, to me, has been one of those guys that Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio have really liked. And I know his performance last year, especially in the first half of the season, you know, was was less than stellar and certainly inconsistent. But they thought he improved uh, over the second half of the season, and they think he is really smart. Like, he's one of those culture guys that they like. And if you look at their depth chart, you know, you've got Holcomb, you've got Bostic, and you've got Davis sort of all penciled in as starters. Well, if Bostic starts, it's at middle linebacker, which would put Davis as one of the outside linebackers and more likely than not as a strong side linebacker because I think Holcomb with his speed, although either one of them can play sort of that will spot, um, but I, I, that's going to be an interesting training camp, di- you know, um, thing to watch. Like, where if if Bostic's on the field, he's on the field as a middle linebacker. I think. I don't think he lines up on the outside. And if they really love Davis and they want him to play middle linebacker, then Bostic may be in jeopardy. And then you end up with a guy like. Well, um, you know, 47, um, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, the guy that played Kali Hudson, who I think they really liked as a really aggressive player and a good tackler. H- how do you see all of this shaking out? It's early. We'll find out more a month from now, obviously a month and a half from now. But do you agree with me on Bostic that they like him, but the only spot for him is middle linebacker? Yeah, I get, I get your point there for sure. I, I guess the thing is, like, it's, Part of what the scouts take was that if you put Davis in the middle, basically he'll see a lot more than if you isolate him on the outside. Right. And he's going to be kind of limited in that role. And you want to expand his game as best you can because you want him to kind of do all these different things and then figure out you know what ultimately he is best suited for and react there. And what's the potential there? Like the growth with Jamin Davis is obviously you know far more substantial than anything from Bostic. Bostic is 
a guy, right? I mean, no, no disrespect to him, but like, you know, there's not an upside here. He exists. He'll play in some capacity. And so the question is, okay, so how do we get the, the, the best scenario for them is they maximize Jamin Davis or get close to it and Bostic is playing. And if that means to me, Jamin Davis in the middle and Bostic ends up on the outside, even if it's a lesser, it's not ideal, that to me seems like a reasonable way to go. Maybe there's some issues at times. Again, they're only using, as we know, three linebackers, you know, what, 25, 30% of, of right. a game? Yeah. So it's not, you know, and, and Nicole, and, and with the two linebackers, and you know, it could be Bostic or I think Holcomb, if I had to sort of bet, would be my would be my guess to go with Davis. That's assuming Davis is ready to go and, and can handle three down responsibilities, which, you know, maybe isn't the case week one, but sooner than later. So, um, but, but to your other point, like, you know, I was thinking the other day, like, who is this year's Adrian Peterson? or Sean Davis, the people that were putting on the roster today, two weeks before training camp, but by the end of training camp, were cut. Um, you know, and there were specific reasons for both of those guys. But, you know, I think Bostic, like, there's not, a, there's not enough linebacker depth for me to say, well, that's going to happen. But I, to your point, though, if they do make the determination they want Davis in the middle and Bostic they feel is really not good enough on the outside, that they have to go in some other direction, well, then what? Then could that be a case? I'm not saying that. I would imagine – he ultimately starts because, like, at a bare minimum, I just don't even know what else they would do. You mentioned Khalid Hudson. I mean, Ron R- R- Rivera brought him up um, a, a few weeks ago when when some of us spoke with him at an event for Joe for Joe Gibbs. He he brought Hudson up sort of randomly as a um, you know as sort of that Buffalo nickel uh, as an option right. there. Um, so just the fact that he even brought him up in any capacity was notable because he didn't even play defense really last year. Um, so that's interesting. But yeah, that would be my thoughts. Just like I think ultimately, if the book, I would focus on Davis. What can he do? How do we maximize his situation to get him going where we want him to be as soon as possible? Even if that means having to play Bostic or somebody else at the other uh, on the outside. I'd have to go and look this up again, but um, they had Kalik Hudson out there for defensive snaps at the end of the year. More and more. Like, I, I felt like I remember coming in late in the season and going, 47 got snaps. Like, he was. When, when Kevin Pierre Lewis was missing time. Right, true. Then, then yeah, then, then they were doing some different things, and that's when Hudson got in there a, a little bit. But, yeah, it just wasn't, wasn't a guy that was out there a ton otherwise. But, look, I mean, you know, second year player, I, I, they drafted him. I, I don't think there's. I, it's not inconceivable to me that that would happen. I mean, for sure. But, um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, again, to your point, training camp, we all have a lot of assumptions and thoughts, but this is why you do training camp. And, you know, Hudson wasn't somebody we were, you know, very focused on during the earlier uh, OTAs and things like that. But, yeah, somebody to, to keep an eye on for sure. Um, I'm trying real quickly to pull up uh, the last, one of the last game books with snap counts because I forget which game it was, but I think he had. Um, which game is this? Yeah, he he played 17 defensive snaps in that game against the Panthers. Um uh in that in that game. Now, was that a game that didn't include yeah, there was no KPL in that game. So that made more sense. But you know, the other thing too, and I remember this, is Bostic pretty much was on the field for every defensive snap down the stretch. Um, 
It's something that will be interesting to watch, and it's very important, I think, to the defense. Back to your column in The Athletic uh, about getting a lot of this feedback on their rookie class. What about Cosme? What, 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 did, what did the scouts take on Cosme? What was his take on Cosme? And, you know, are you with me that I think ultimately, you know, and maybe very early, he's the starting right tackle? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> the... The, the, the you know not not everybody views Cosme um, as a first round pick or as somebody that you definitely wanted relative to some of the other players at that spot. Uh, there's some questions perhaps about you know how big can he get big enough to to play that spot while maintaining his impressive uh, like four eight four forty time and you know and others just not necessarily fans of the tape for whatever the reason. This person though not the opposite of that uh, believed. That Cosme had, um, he he viewed him as a, as a possible first round pick. Uh, I think he's, I think it was like the fourth. I think he was basically like tied with Darisaw, Christian Darisaw, who, who went in the first round right. as the fourth tackle. But he preferred Cosme to to, to Darisaw. Um, <clears throat> so obviously he would probably go with your view of that Cosme's going to get in there sooner than later. I mean, you know, the, the Morgan Moses thing. There was a lot of you know factors that that went into that. Decision, but obviously on some level you have to feel like, well, do we have a backup plan if we if we go in this direction? You do have Cornelius Lucas, who was pretty solid. You know, it felt like last year at left tackle when he had to play right tackle is considered to be his more natural position. He did start a bunch of games for the Bears uh, before he came over here. But from an upside perspective, yeah, this is about this is Cosme is clearly going to be the answer there. And I guess just like with anything else, right? It, how quickly does he make the adjustment? coming into camp. Obviously he was playing some um, you know, during the OTAs and whatever, but like wasn't you know, he was mostly working with the second unit and wasn't always necessarily going up against Chase Young. In in the training camp we'll in theory see a lot more of the one on one matchups where the you know the tackle against the the, the the edge rusher and we'll get a chance to see Cosme against Chase Young and Montez Sweat and so on and I think that will go um, a long a long way. I think ultimately, you know, Lucas is the solid safer play, but Cosme is the upside play. It's a spot where obviously you can't, you know, right tackle, you know, kind of important. You want to protect the quarterback and all that stuff and the open holes for the running game. So you can't just sort of have a guy um, learn on the job per se, especially when, like, it's Jamin Davis, there is no really other option, right? It's like, if you don't use Jamin Davis, like, what are, what are we even talking about? Right. At tackle, they do have another another option, so they don't have to um, go that go that route. Um, and that's what makes it... Um, that's what makes it interesting, uh, for sure, with regards to, uh, to to Cosme. I, I don't know. I, I would imagine I'll, I'll say Lucas is out there for week one, but it would. But Rivera clearly likes Cosme, and it wouldn't surprise me, therefore, if he gets out there uh, soon enough. What about in the third round, um, the two players? Let's go with the first one that was picked, Benjamin St. Juice, the cornerback from Minnesota. I, I sort of feel like since minicamp and OTAs, there's been a lot of discussion about him and in various, you know, stories um, about the upcoming season. He's been picked as like a surprise com- contributor, et cetera. Um, what was the scouts' take on him, and where do you think he sort of fits in right now? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the conversation with, with St. Juice was probably just more broadly about the fact that he's a, a six foot three cornerback and what does that mean? Um, in the NFL, and obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of up, a lot of positives to have a player who's that size, who's that fluid, 
Um, you know, the length, the, the, the ability, you know, receivers are getting bigger and bigger. You know, obviously there are some of the shorter guys, but they're, but they're getting a lot of these bigger, uh, bigger options and you need, it's, it's important to have size on the perimeter. So, um, so, so they've got that with, um, with Sagey's now. The, the one question is sort of like when you have one, when you have taller corners, the longer legs, is it, it's not as easy at times for them to sort of, you know, get in and out of, of breaks and and um, <clears throat> and things along those lines, and that was sort of the the the, the biggest question there. But I think in general, he he was you know like the, the the player from what he had he had seen. I don't think he had as much of a feel for him versus like some of the other people we're talking about. But um, you know, by and large, with St. Juice, I think it's a really fascinating circumstance, right? Like we're, we're we like it would be easy to say, okay, they're going to have Kendall Fuller, William Jackson on the outside, Jimmy Moreland is the nickel cornerback, and then you have, you know, Landon Collins at strong safety and this, that, and the other. But, you know, you have Cam Curl. If you're going to keep Cam Curl and Landon Collins on the field together, which is something, obviously, they did beginning of last year, and it's potentially the way to, to, to go this time, well, then that means taking one of the cornerbacks off the field. On the other hand, you can make the case that, hey, if St. Juice can actually play right now, like he did at, at times during OTAs and, I mean, he can't be looked pretty good. You can you know, take all those practices with a grain of salt, but looked pretty good. If he's able to go, are you maybe better off putting him outside, and moving Kendall Fuller to the slot on some on some more plays and going that route? Uh, but that would then maybe take Curl or Moreland off the field a little bit more. So they really actually have. It, it's actually going to be pretty interesting to see what what they do in the in the secondary. Obviously, Landon Collins probably won't even be out on the field for most or all training camp. Um, so we won't see it in full, but, um, you know, the fact that St. Juice, again, it's incredibly early, but the fact that he looks the part early on and gives them size where they otherwise don't really have a lot, I mean, I think it's going to make him a really intriguing option for them. Yeah, I do too. Um, I think just the secondary in general and Landon Collins, you know, availability and his health in training camp and a, a lot of that will be um, interesting. You know, we've already heard some favorable things said. Maybe you were a part of this discussion. Um, Derek Forrest, their fifth round pick um, and how well coached he was um, coming from you know, uh, a Cincinnati defense that was one of the outstanding defenses in college football last year. Uh, we know how much they like Jeremy Reeves. There's just a lot going on in the secondary. DeShazer Everett, I thought, played really well. Uh, you know, I, 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 one of my favorite points of the year that Cooley made um, last year during the season, and I forget when he made it, but it was after DeShazer Everett started to play. He said, you know, DeShazer Everett is one of those guys that has really not benefited from um, the lack of hitting in practice and the rules regulating hitting in practice because the thing that he does well, which is hit, um, doesn't show up in practice. And that's why whenever he's gotten in the games, he's sort of always outperformed what many people in the organization <laughs> thought he would. Um, I, I want to get to the other third-round pick, uh, Diami Brown, because I know, and you and I had these conversations before, and I think you had a sense of it too, that there was a lot of uh, several people in the organization, Scott Turner in particular, that really wanted Diami Brown, and they were holding their breath as the third round was going on because they really saw him as another huge third-round receiver get. Uh, you talked to a scout about him, and this is probably as positive, you know, 
um, review. But, you know, we've heard a lot of it even since OTAs and training camp. But just give me some thoughts and, and share with everybody some of the thoughts that you got on the scout on the third-round receiver from North Carolina, De'Ami Brown. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to put it, you know, it's one thing for a player or for a scout to say they like a player, sure, whatever. But for some context, in this case, the scout said that he had um, Brown rated very favorably compared to Rashad Bateman, who was the first-round pick by the Ravens and, right. and, and considered to be a good pick. Um, and and that sort of for for this evaluator, the level that he's putting um, Brown on that that he was somebody a big fan of, and, and the, to me. He really is like even more than like uh, like I'm not just you know discounting Jamie Davis's upside or Cosme and all these guys like especially the all these the top four guys are all you know veer into that athletic freak category to a certain degree or at least they're intriguing athletically and I think what's interesting with me with with Deami Brown is there's a lot of it seems like a lot of Terry McLaurin in him as a guy who's got speed but he's also a really precise route runner and can you know plays a little bit tougher than maybe you would think based on his size and. Um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, maybe not this year. Obviously, you have Curtis Samuel now, and, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I, I think De'Ami Brown, if you tell me that De'Ami Brown and Tara McLaurin are kind of out to go to outside receivers, you know, in, in a year or so, like, and, and being really effective at that, I, that wouldn't, that wouldn't stun me. I'm, 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 I'm kind of, maybe it's just because he's the, he's the one of the top four that I've written about, uh, or talked about a lot. I guess I've talked about it, written about a lot of them, but, uh, but I'm really, I don't know, I'm just really intrigued by him, and, and and listening to what this scout had to say doesn't did not did not uh, dampen my, uh, my my personal hype uh, for this kid. They um, they really liked him. I remember just sitting there watching the receivers come off the board, and then they took St. Juiced in the third round before him, and I'm sure that Turner and others were sitting there going, "Oh my God, is he going to be available when we get uh, to our other pick here?" And he was, and. You know, I don't want to go nuts here, but it's actually kind of interesting that a team that really hasn't had offensive playmakers and offensive skill position players in the last, you know, two to, to two and a half years, three years, I guess, now may find it, you know, a challenge to get them all on the field at the same time. That's nuts. But between Gibson and McKissick and then McLaurin. And obviously the addition of Curtis Samuel, and if De'Ami Brown ends up being all that, um, and, and oh, by the way, Adam Humphreys, who is a pure slot guy, it'll just, they're, they're not going to have, potentially, they're not going to have the excuse of not having enough players that get open. Um, and I think this year they'll have a quarterback that can distribute better. All right, uh, I want to take a break uh, for a few words from a few of our sponsors. There is breaking news here as we are recording the podcast. It's Washington football team related, and Ben and I will get to both of those items when we come back, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Ben just confirmed moments ago as we're recording the podcast here this morning um, uh, a report from Ian Rappaport that Brandon Sheriff and the team will not uh, agree on a contract extension before the July 17th deadline, um, which is coming up. This is hardly um, a July 15th deadline. Uh, This is hardly uh, a surprise, Uh, you know, Sheriff is going to make, you know, close to, you know, over $18 million this year on his second consecutive franchise tag. 
And, you know, we've had this conversation many times as it relates to the tag. I mean, if you've got a player that you think you want long-term, it's better to be aggressive early than go down this franchise tag path. It gets very pricey. And as we've learned here, uh, the closer a player, no matter what you think of that player, if that player is good enough Um, that player gets closer to unrestricted free agency. They want to participate in it. So I'm certainly not surprised at this news. And, you know, I think it certainly increases the possibility. If not, it it becomes probable that Brandon Sheriff will be playing his last year here in Washington. Yeah, I, I'm just sort of as I was uh, dealing with this really quick, I was looking through my some of the articles I've written on this topic, and and back in February before they they gave him the tag, my my article was they Washington if they want to keep him, they need to give Sheriff their best offer now and and skip the tag because I mean yeah for twenty twenty one purposes it secures this player rather than losing him in free agency and then having to figure out something else, but on the other hand, like it it's it really really limits the the. The, the likelihood that he's playing here going forward. Obviously, we in Washington have unique experience with this because of the Kirk Cousins circumstance. But putting aside any of the drama, you know, he gets on the second tag. Sheriff got a, a, a salary raise um, of twenty percent of what he received off of what he got last year. So he made fifteen million last year. Now he's making eighteen. That goes up to I think it's like forty four percent of what it was. And at eighteen million just for this year. The highest paid guard on a multi-year contract is averaging around sixteen million a year. And that's so he's th- already that, getting that paid. Th- that's Thuney, right? Yeah, yeah. Thuney with the uh, with the Chiefs, who who signed like a five-year, eighty million dollar contract in terms of just the, the raw numbers. Right. Um, so like, sure, like, and so you know, Surfside is not going to for them. If you're negotiating with Washington, it's going to say, okay, well, eighteen million a year is where we're at. So sure, you want to talk about a five-year deal at that point? And obviously, for Washington, that would be nuts. So. Likelihood is if you're gonna, I would I would put it like this: I would not invest in a branded sheriff jersey if you're looking to wear it beyond this season. Yeah, the other thing too um, is that 2022, and I remember looking this up the last time I had a conversation about sheriff. There are no guards. Like there are some tackles that'll be available in free agency next year, but he will be like a top 10 available free agent in total, and essentially, really the only guard out there. So he's going to be able to strike gold. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I've, I've, it's been weird with Sheriff. I, I had this sense when they were with Bruce Allen trying to get him signed to a long-term deal that he had no intent on signing here long-term. I think it's a different organization now. You know, I think Sheriff probably looked at this organization like Kirk did at some point and say, you know, say to himself, I- I'd rather be somewhere else. Maybe it's different now, but um, he's too close to the Holy Grail. Uh, and he's already at the Holy Grail this year in terms of the position at 18 plus million. Um, as you mentioned, 2 million more than the number two. So, uh, yeah, uh, there will be, you know, there will be a hefty, uh, a, a, a very healthy bidding war for Brandon Sheriff, and Washington's going to have to pay up, you know, a year after they paid him on a second franchise tag. And to your point, you never pay a third franchise tag because it, it would be an outrageous sum of money. I think a lot of people would say you don't pay $18 million to a guard to begin with. But this particular year, they were in a pretty decent situation 
cap wise. They could take the 18 million uh, for the year and still, where are they? I think they're still like 15 million under the cap as we speak, somewhere in that neighborhood. I think they're still in the top five or six of teams in terms of favorable cap uh, positions. But so there's that news. Um, and then, you know, if you're looking forward, well, well don't. They're, they're not, you know, they've got, you know, guys that they think they have depth right now at the guard position. They signed Eric Flowers. One of the reasons is they, they felt like they needed another starter, and they also wanted to have him around for some depth. I mean, they liked Schweitzer. They liked Martin to a certain degree. Um, and Sadiq Charles, I think some people believe, could be a guard. So there will be options. And let's not forget, it's a guard as Jay Gruden once said. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the so, other... I mean, look, for 2021 purposes, they, they still have their best offensive lineman. They lose Morgan Moses. You know, if we're just focusing on this year, they're better off having Brandon Sheriff than they're not. But yes. long-term, that's, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, the other piece of news is really inside baseball stuff, for the most part. Ben told me about it during the break. Um, but longtime NFL.com writer Mike Silver, many of you may know his name, and I'll tell you why here in a moment if it's not completely familiar to you as an NFL fan. Um, but Mike Silver uh, wrote for NFL.com Forever, a longtime NFL reporter. He has taken a job with the Washington football team. Um, Julie Donaldson tweeting out, excited to welcome Mike Silver to our content team this season. His wealth of knowledge and experience will help us tell stories in a truly authentic way. Um, Mike Silver is very close with Ron Rivera. Mike Silver pretty much broke the news, I think, about Rivera being that the new head coach in Washington or being down to, to the finalist and then wrote a story about Ron Rivera. And I'm, I'm trying to pull it up right now because there was a part of that story that I really loved. Um, and it was – hold on for a second. I, I have it here, Ben. G- I'll find it. Give me your thoughts on the Silver thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think more... – Beyond the fact that he's a guy who's obviously you know a longtime journalist and he's been around and he's covered a lot of uh, he's covered a lot of things. I think I have a book on my a book on my bookshelf. He did a a biography or autobiography on uh, Natalie Coughlin, one of the big Olympic swimmers from a few years ago. I think because I think Silver is a Cal guy also. I think and, and she was from Cal and obviously Rivera right. is a Cal guy. Um, so look, whatever he's he's that guy. But I think the interesting thing is. You know, I, I I I did this rant yesterday on my podcast about all this recent name change news that everybody's getting excited about or discussing, and I'm sure you did too, and I don't mean this in any negative way for anybody, but, like, this is a downtime of the year. There's not much news. There's nothing happening. So anything that's even remotely interesting, we're all sort of talking about, including things like Jason Wright saying they're not going to use Native American um, name or imagery or anything, including warriors going forward. And of course, that's like the biggest duh thing, right? right. Like, I mean, of course they weren't going to go back to that, but they're taking, they're, they're taking advantage of the news cycle and putting it out there and making it seem like it's doing a thing. And I think this Mike Silverling is another example of this. They, they have their own, you know, they hired Julie Donaldson a year ago. They're trying to, you know, they have a website and while it's not, look, it's obviously the in-house News like they're not gonna uh, they're not gonna crush anybody when somebody has a bad day or they're not gonna start ask Ron Rivera 
the, the hardest of hitting questions, right? Uh, but, okay, whatever, they're doing what they do. But they are looking at that site as something bigger. It isn't just a place to deposit some video from practice. They are tr- they want it to be part of a bigger, of their bigger property, just like Jason Wright saying he wants, um, he, you know, they're not just viewing the, a, a new stadium as a place to play football. They're viewing it as a, as a home for all kinds of other endeavors. Same thing with the name. They are really pushing this uh, on a PR level, but also as a broader enterprise level to expand this thing beyond the simple football team that we all discuss. And I think even this may not seem like as big of a deal. This is another example of that. They could have just hired a 25-year-old who makes no no money to write some basic copy, and that's kind of what they've done over time. And I don't know exactly what Mike Silver is going to do. It sounds like he's not moving here. It sounds like he'll just sort of be still be an NFL network guy and, and do some things and help out. But having a story written by Mike Silver is obviously something you're going to have to read. It'll be probably well-written and perhaps informative. Um, and, they, and that's, I think, just another example of them trying to view this entire product, everything that goes around the football team, um, and trying to raise the level because they're viewing their, their own property as something that they should get more out of. Yeah, I we, we had a conversation about this yesterday and the day before. I think one of the more fascinating parts of Jason Wright's job as the team president of business, you know, and, and having responsibility over the business operations and not having any responsibility over football and yet being the guy that communicates more publicly than anybody else in the organization, really, at least in this offseason, is that line about, you know, becoming the gold standard of sports and media entertainment, you know, companies and organizations was just so off-putting to me when I first heard it because it was just a reflection of same old, same old. You know, it's like, hello, it's about the fucking football. All right, can can we one day here in this town with this organization make it about football? Um, but to be fair to him, the football isn't his responsibility. Uh, that's Ron Rivera's responsibility. I think organizationally there should be more recognition and more of an understanding that when you talk too much about non-football stuff, there isn't a recognition of how much it sort of is like you know needles in people's eyes because of the winning off the field and the fact in they haven't won much off the field, and I pointed that out earlier in the podcast, but they they just... You know, again, I, I'm I'm beating a dead horse here because I mentioned it earlier as well. I, it, it's still one of my all-time favorite lines, and I'm repeating it because Ben's here. But Doc used to walk around the bullpen at the station, and you know, after a loss, and say, "This franchise, they're the best between Monday and Saturday. Sundays are the problem." And all we want, and all fans want, is a better product on Sundays, a better product on game days. And yet this organization's always been focused on all of the other stuff more, and they haven't done the other stuff very well. So um, anyway, I did find the Mike Silver um, uh, story that he wrote on December 28th, um, 2019, um, about Ron Rivera. And this was the part that I remembered that I really liked. You know, they talked about... um, 
you know, him taking over a team that wasn't very good. They were two and fourteen. And he writes, Rivera recalled a story from his early in his Panthers from early in his Panthers tenure when he publicly took blame for his players' failure to execute the coach's plan. The following day he read a quote from one of his players in the newspaper that set him off. This player said, you know, this is how we did it last year. It worked out great for us. I'm not sure why he wants to change things, Rivera recalled. And I freaking lost my mind, Rivera said. I had this PowerPoint presentation all set, but instead I walked into this meeting, I had the newspaper rolled up, and I got in front of them and I said, let me tell you guys something, just so you fucking guys understand this. If you do things the way we ask, the way you're coached, the way it's planned, and it works, you guys will get all the kudos. If it fails, it's on me because... Because that's what I'm telling you. But if you go out and you do your own damn thing and we fucking lose, it's on you. And I will never fall on the sword for you again. That's fucking bullshit. Sit there and say, and this is, I'm quoting him, sit there and say that what we did last year worked. So two and 14 was fucking good enough for you guys. And then he screamed, fuck you to the entire team. And he said, I threw the paper down and I walked out. I was very blunt about it, and that's it. If they're not all in, if they're not willing to do it your way, it's time to fucking get rid of those guys. And that's what happened. We systematically got rid of guys that weren't doing it our way. Closed quote. Well, that's what we've seen here so far. If you're not on board with his way, um, you're out. And by the way, I love that about him. I absolutely love that about him because at the same time, he's not a dictator or an authoritarian. People really like him, and we know that from just the reaction from his current players, but really the players that were with him for a long period of time in Carolina. I mean, that was a genuine response when he got fired from a lot of his former players. But I think when he gets frustrated, it's because – You're not going to do it your way. You're going to do it my way, and you're going to get credit if we do well. But if you do it your own way, I'm not falling on the sword for you, and you're out of here. And I think that's really in the first year and a half, year and, you know, whatever, I think that's what we've seen from him. You know, and by the way, you know, taking away those couple of months where some of the things he said didn't make a lot of sense, he was fighting cancer in those first couple of months of the season. Yeah, that was uh, you, that, that, that was quite the, the the quote and quite the, uh, the the reading of it from 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 you. You got into it. That was uh, I, I, I like that. I'm, I'm kind of pumped up. I really want to go uh, work out right now. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, be, uh, look, be, be, I caref- mean, be careful because I know you're not a big workout guy. So make sure you ease into it. Um, but no, I just remembered. <laughs> I remembered the Mike Silver story because I had him on the podcast right after he wrote that story. Um, Mike was, I knew Mike was good friends with Rivera and, you know, Cooley actually knew Mike pretty well. And Mike came on the podcast and we did a long interview and it was really interesting. And I remember him being a very interesting guy to talk to your, to your point, now that he's basically working for a team, it'll be interesting to see how he writes and whether or not, you know, he has a sharp, uh, you know, keyboard finger, um, when, when it's required. Because uh, I, don't, I don't think you can if you're working for the team. Yeah, um, 
No, and, and by the way, like this isn't just about Washington. I think I saw that Steve Weish, who used to be a former Falcons beat writer, he's also with the NFL Network. Now he is also, I think, has a similar situation going on where he's going to contribute to the Atlanta Falcons site. It is interesting that the, and there may be other examples. I, I'm, I'm not not saying there's not, but these two I mentioned are both of the NFL Network. Obviously, that's you know, it's owned by the league, so it's going to be a a, a cozier relationship and look I, I mean we'll see i would imagine that whatever silver is going to write it's going to be things along the lines of featurey stories on this player or that player as opposed to uh, some inside ba- too much inside baseball stuff and if that were to happen then people like me are going to start getting annoyed <laughs> from a, from an access perspective but um yeah we'll see it's interesting like i said from a broader view of what what this what this organization is doing, and like I said, regardless of what I think of it, you mentioned the idea before. Stop talking about things that are not about football. Um, all, all that is, is is a fair point, but it is interesting to see the level of coherence and competence that seems to be happening now in this organization. It isn't just doing something and just throwing it up against the wall or having no plan beyond the the, the minute of what you're doing, which was happening before. Um, with the different people running the show. It, it, and, you know, this is just another example of that. Again, what, regardless of what I think of this, it's a sign of people over there trying to do more with what they have. And I think if I'm a fan, I think a lot of these things make me feel better. You, you know, again, you want the wins on the field, but ultimately kind of make me feel better about who's running the show over there. Yeah, I just think um, ultimately – for an organization like this one that is at an, at an all-time low from a business standpoint, from a customer standpoint, from, you know, a potential, you know, growth standpoint, they have to produce on the field. You know, I, I mentioned yesterday, I put it in the terms of what Jason Wright is trying to accomplish is he's trying to build out something that is losing resilient that is so hard in this particular business because so much of it is about what happens on the field. You know, a team like this with its past and with its present, you know, isn't going to gain enough incrementally because they've got a great stadium or great entertainment or they're, they've got a really good esports team or they're, you know, a, a shareholder in a, in a soccer team or I just don't see it that way. The Cowboys, and I, I pointed this out yesterday, I think they're one of the very few examples of a team that can grow business-wise without, you know, winning significantly on the field. And it's even a bad comparison to Washington because they've won more, you know, under Jerry than than Dan's ever won. And, and I pointed this out yesterday, you know, Washington's losing has been low-rent losing. You know, it's been embarrassing low-rent kind of stuff that's really turned off people beyond um, just the losing. So they can try to turn that around, and I give them credit, and I give Jason credit, credit you know, uh, kudos for, for, for attempting to do that. But his job is totally reliant on what Ron Rivera and the football people accomplish, period. If they don't win, if they don't create sustained winning, um, and, and by the way, have something beyond the winning that, you know, people feel good about, it's going to be a, a hell of a challenge for him, no matter how many Mike Silvers and Julie Donaldsons and, you know, esports companies they get involved in. That's my view on it, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and not to, not, not to, uh, shamelessly r- r- mention one of the things I wrote, but the, the article that we did a few weeks ago, 
where we did a deep dive into the name change process, not what the name will be necessarily, but what it takes to get it done. Like the biggest takeaway for me from that entire story, talking to branding experts and others is if you don't win, the name will always, it won't matter. Like so many of the the, the names that maybe people think are great names are that because the team's won. It's not because Packers is amazing or, 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 you know, other, other names, it's just, or the Ravens, but you think of the Ravens, you think of Ray Lewis and you think of that defense and you think of a certain thing that's because of the product on the field. So they can do all the marketing they want. They can come up with, spend all this time coming up with a name. If they don't win, then that name will take on a different view as a, as that of a loser. And that's how, like, again, the deep people think of the NBA team in town to some degree because of, for the same reason. So, um, yeah, ultimately you got you got to win and that will help everything else. Yeah. And it's never more crucial to win and win quickly than when you are in the midst of a major brand change with what once was, you know, a passionately followed product. Um, there's actually pressure to win right away with whatever brand change comes. And, and, and I will tell you this too, and, um, this is going to seem like it's another knock on Jason Wright. It's not. I don't think him communicating it in this way is necessarily a problem. And I think most teams would do it this way. But, you know, they really want everybody to believe that this is a very inclusive process. Like somehow um, the fan base is going to feel much better about them and about the name. Um, and anything else because they're a part of this process, or at least they're making people feel like they're a part of the process. He had a quote in Pete Haley's story on NBC Sports Washington. Um, I actually think the journey through this, making sure there's the right engagement at each step along the way, making sure that the decision-making process is clear to folks wherever we can be open and clear about it, is almost as important as where we land. That shows that we're actually committed to stewarding this on behalf of the fan base. I, I just disagree. I, I think ultimately none of that shit matters. I think, you know, whether they quickly picked it because they had picked it five years ago and they had all the branding around it or whether or not the fan base really was impactful or influential in the new name, none of it matters. You've got to win. You've got to win and you've got to win big and you've got to win quickly. Um, And you've got to have it be something that people buy into as this is now a good organization that wins and that every year we go into a season, there's a chance that we're going to be competing for the playoffs or a Super Bowl. And um, without that, uh, good luck with, you know, everything else. I mean, he's got he's got a very difficult job. He's he's got very little control over the, you know, his P&L fate. But anyway, uh, what else you got for me? I was I, I had other things on my list, but you've got to go. Um, I know you're up against it as well, and we had the news there. Uh, we'll talk, you know, name and and Wizards coaching search the next time we chat. Uh, fantastic! Always appreciate the time, and uh, yeah, good 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 timing for them to break the Brandon Scherf 
for the branded jerseys to come out while we were talking. Good stuff. Yeah, of course. Uh, ben Standig, everybody. Subscribe to The Athletic. Listen to his podcast, Standig Room Only, anywhere you get a podcast. And follow him on Twitter at Ben Standig because Ben does break and very often is the first to confirm any sort of story um, about the Washington football team. Uh, I am done for the day. Hopefully you guys have a great day. Back tomorrow with Tommy.